Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 121 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining us for another glorious interview episode where we snuggle up next to the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world and whisper sweet nothings into our microphones for your ears only. This time around, I catch up with my friend Mark Viertaler, who is the head distiller over at 10th Ward Distilling Company in historic Frederick, Maryland. Our conversation revolves around the history and craft of one of the world's most controversial spirits, absinthe. It's green, it's incredibly potent, and it was banned in the United States for the better part of a century. But before we dig into this contentious, verdant tipple, let's take this opportunity for you to make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the absinthe frappe, or if you want to be French about it, frappe. This classic drink, popular in New Orleans and the southern U.S., is basically a quick and dirty variation on classic absinthe service. So instead of the fancy absinthe fountain with your slotted absinthe spoon and your sugar cube and your ice water drip, you basically make the absinthe frappe the way a bartender makes a shaken drink. To create this cocktail, you'll need one to two ounces of absinthe, depending on how strong you like it, one half ounce of simple syrup, and one to two ounces of soda water. Combine the absinthe and simple syrup in a cocktail shaker with ice, give it a quick shake, and then strain into your cocktail glass over crushed or pebble ice. Top it off with your soda water and enjoy through a fancy straw. There are a few acceptable variations on this drink where other ingredients are thrown in. Some variations call for muddling lemon and or mint into the bottom of the glass before you mix the cocktail, and others even call for additional anisette ingredients like herb saint or pernode. In the end, the absinthe frappe is a simple, refreshing drink that operates kind of like an old-fashioned, if you think about it. The simple syrup is, of course, your sweetener, and your absinthe plays the role of both the spirit and the bitters, due to the influence of wormwood as a flavoring and bittering agent. So, now that you're equipped with an appropriately classy and refreshing tipple, let's turn our attention back to this fun little romp through absinthe craft and history with Mark Viertaler. Some of the things he and I discuss in this interview include how Mark came to be the head distiller at 10th Ward Distilling Company and why their innovative approach to distilling made absinthe a really attractive choice as an anchor point in their core collection of products. What it's like to build a flavor profile with herbs and botanicals that go through several phases of different distillation treatments. We cover where this can go wrong and how to know when you finally get something right. Then we jump into the murky history of absinthe, which begins in mainland Europe, makes a splash across the world in the post-phylloxera drinking landscape, and then is forced underground for much of the 20th century. 
we teach you how to operate an absinthe fountain to louche and dilute your absinthe with or without the traditional sugar cube. We debate the costs and benefits of the absinthe rinse method versus the atomizer approach when building a Sazerac, and we even attempt to put to rest some of the apocryphal stories and malicious smear campaigns that kept absinthe out in the cold until very, very recently. This is a fantastic conversation, and we do have a bunch of fun video to support this episode, which you can find by visiting the show notes page or by checking us out on Instagram or Facebook at Modern Barkhart. And with that, please enjoy this wide-ranging, absinthe-soaked conversation with my friend, 10th Ward Distilling Company head distiller, Mark Viertaler. Mark, thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So we're going to talk about absinthe today as evidenced by this beautiful setup here. Yes. But um, why don't we start by having you introduce yourself to our audience and just give us a, a little brief bio. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, so my name is Mark A. Viertaler. I'm the head distiller here at 10th Ward Distilling Company uh, here in Frederick, Maryland. Uh, actually just uh, celebrated my one year here. Congrats, so, congrats. Yeah, thank you, which is very cool. Uh, prior to that, I was a distiller and director of marketing for Boot Hill Distilling back in Dodge City, Kansas, which was my hometown. Uh, before that, uh, like a lot of other people, I came by the distilling and alcohol profession in a very roundabout way. Uh, actually received my Bachelor of Science in Journalism from the University of Kansas. And when I graduated uh, journalism school, was an investigative reporter for a couple of years. And Unfortunately, that was around the time, you know, early to mid-2000s where they, uh, a lot of ownership in newspapers decided that they didn't really want to spend the money for investigative reporters. Um, plus, you know, we spent a, spent a lot of money and tended to make advertisers angry. And there you go. So I did what a lot of uh, investigative reporters did and uh, left the industry to get into public relations and marketing. Um, my wife mm -hmm. and I had gone back to our hometown, Dodge City, um, from the Kansas City area. And, I uh, got a job at a uh, national agricultural company as their director of communications and did that for seven and a half years. And while I was doing that, after I had left journalism, I knew I wanted to keep writing. Uh, this was around the time, of course, the cocktail renaissance was starting to take up, that um, having the advantage of friends and family on the coasts was starting to even trickle into rural western Kansas. And so wanted to keep writing, wanted to keep uh, behind the bar, did some bartending in college. and. Uh, ended up working at a local theater, Life Theater, developed their bar program and spent about eight years working to develop a taste for craft cocktails uh, out on the plains of western Kansas and started a blog that was originally just a way for me to write about cocktails, ended up getting a lot of attention, uh, ended up doing some freelance cocktail writing nationally and internationally and around the same time there were some farmers in Dodge who were getting ready to open up a distillery. Uh, and they reached out and they were like, hey, you know agriculture, you know booze, do you want to come on, uh, on board as like a consultant? You know, just come in and taste and yeah, this is good, no, this is bad. And sure. uh, ended up deciding, you know, I, I'd been at my job for a while and really wasn't very happy at it. And so I saw an advertisement pop up for that distillery for a part-time distiller and a part-time events manager and called uh, one of the owners that I knew and said, hey, how about bringing me on full-time as a distiller and your director of marketing? And he said, yep, yeah, let's do it. So I walked away from my PR job and learned how to be a distiller and did that for about two and a half years. And two and a half years in, the gentleman, John, who was the head distiller here at 10th Ward, was a friend of mine. 
uh, reached out. He got a job in Ireland, said, hey, I don't know if you're looking at leaving, but I think you'd love what 10th Ward is doing. I think you'd appreciate Frederick and the Maryland and the DMV scene. And my wife and I looked at each other and we're like, well, let's see what happens and interviewed Monica, our founder, fell in love with 10th Ward, fell in love with what they were doing, fell in love with Frederick, fell in love with the East Coast, and we're here and yeah. continuing to grow and establish ourselves here both in Frederick and 10th Ward. Amen. Yeah, I feel like a lot of uh, <laughs> distilleries and, and distillers have been born out of uh, people frustrated in cubicles. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, it was, uh, as I always tell people, I walked away, I took a pretty big pay cut, but my quality of life and the happiness has skyrocketed. Yeah, yeah indeed. Uh, also let me kind of pursue cocktails and bartending as a profession as well, too. So. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great, man. So um, we have we have an absinthe-focused episode here, mm-hmm. and we've, we've kind of gone through your, your journey through distilling and... Uh, how you've come from Kansas here to Maryland and 10th Ward. And what I'm interested in is kind of the overlap between Absinthe and 10th Ward, because um, to me, like one of the cool things about 10th Ward is they're doing stuff that's, you know, a little bit different than a lot of distilleries, right? The the slogan is ward off ordinary. Right. <laughs> uh, and I, so I think, you know, mission accomplished. Uh, so, so maybe can you, can you tell us a little bit about, I guess what the 10th word approach to spirits and distilling is, and then maybe then we can segue into why absinthe was such a no brainer for, you know, one of the, the kind of anchor points in your lineup. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, as you had mentioned, you know, one of, we say our slogan, our motto, whatever it may be is ward off ordinary. And it was actually one of the reasons that attracted me to 10th ward is as a personal ethos, as a distiller, you know, I always tell people, people, a bunch of people much more intelligent than me have come before. They're the ones who figured out fermentation. They're the ones who figured out distillation. They're the ones who figured out these very strict and very effective ways to create product. And you, as as us as a distiller, and as a distillery, you would be a fool to not take into account their expertise. But we can then take that and we can move it a step forward mm-hmm. or maybe if not a step forward, make it a little bit more askew, make it a little bit more interesting. Mm-hmm. And so um, kind of the attitude that we take as a distillery is that we take traditional spirit styles and then we add our own unique twist to them. And we are purposeful with how we add those twists. Um, I think one of the big challenges, and you see it maybe a little too often, especially with the massive growth of craft distilleries, is being different just to be different. Just because you're different doesn't make doesn't mean that it's high quality. Yeah, just because you have a pirate themed distillery <laughs> or a you know an '80s yeah. '80s music themed distillery doesn't necessarily exactly. it, it, it's it's a stand in for value. Exactly, kind of. the number of people who have a kitschy grab or a well designed label but have garbage juice in the bottle that's mm-hmm. not going to last that long. Right. And so that's kind of the attitude we take is we kind of take it from a root standpoint of. We want to know how these spirits were produced, why they were produced this way, dig into how that process has changed over the years, why it's changed. And then we look at it and go, how can we make this our own? How can we, again, adjust it to create something that people recognize as a high quality spirit, 
but maybe come at it in a way that they've never experienced it before. Um, and whether that's utilizing local flavors or um, finding and combining different distillation and flavoring techniques or mm-hmm. whether that's, you know, taking kind of even like a fusion culinary attitude towards it of, all right, these have traditionally been these flavors. Can we create something greater than the sum of its parts by finding contrasting flavors sure. within that um, within that framework? And so that's kind of what led us into, you know, absinthe is... Um, absinthe is this absolutely amazing, historical, beautiful, and incredibly misunderstood spirit. Um. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're going to dig into some of those the kind of myths and apocryphal things uh, for sure. But um, um, before we do, just can you just tell people who are out there listening, like what, what are the things that were already in production at 10th Ward before you got here? And then some of the things that you've been able to, to now launch, because I, I like what you were talking about just now with the, the culinary fusion mm-hmm. approach and the, you know, different distilling techniques, it, it makes complete sense to me because I know your lineup, but like sh- share some of the cool things that you've got. Yeah, definitely. As of right now, we produce four main kind of what we call our core products. Um, one of those being the absinthe, um, another one being our smoked corn whiskey, where we actually smoke the corn itself, similar to you would, say, a smoked peat um, a scotch, then that goes in, and so we have these wonderful phenols. Uh, we also make a what we call our caraway rye, mm-hmm. which is a Maryland rye mash, so we pull back on the rye a little bit, a little bit heavier on barley, so it's a bit softer. But then we actually take caraway seeds and toss them in during the mashing process, and those seeds stay in through the mashing, fermentation, distillation. Um, And then the fourth one, which uh, I was proud to be the one to introduce to the lineup, is our Jennifer-inspired gin. Kind of a similar attitude to the absinthe. Um, You know, Jennifer is considered the precursor to modern London dry gin. Very historical, very unique. A lot of people haven't had it, but also just an absolutely wonderful spirit to Mm -hmm. get people introduced into the styles of gin and the history of it. uh, so those are kind of our four main lineup, but then we also do um, four seasonal liqueurs that are all focused around seasonal ingredients, utilizing local uh, harvested botanicals. Uh, we do a handful of one-offs, um, again, focusing on that local angle. If local breweries have a beer that they weren't super happy with or say something went off, we will pretty much always buy it off of them and distill it and sure. see what we can do with it. And it just kind of gives us that flexibility to have a core group of spirits that are unique, but also allows us to continue experimenting and trying new things and always kind of keeping us a little bit off kilter from just kind of hitting that day-to-day rut. Right. When I came in, um, the smoked corn and the caraway rye are two of the originals uh, from when the distillery was founded back in 2016. Uh, the absinthe nouvelle was introduced by my predecessor a year ago, and then I introduced the Jennifer earlier this year. As any distiller will tell you, especially one who's not a distiller owner and kind of will distill at different spaces, you also bring your own attitudes and your own styles. Um, in fact, what we have today poured in the glasses, and I'm really excited for you to see uh, as we start the drip on this, is 
uh, batch 14 of our absinthe, uh, about two and a half months of nonstop research and experimental batches on our small five gallon still led us to this one. It's still that same base recipe, but our process has changed a little bit and mm -hmm. we have tweaked how we actually produce it to create something that we think is a little bit softer, a little bit more round. And that's not to say that our previous batches of absinthe weren't amazing. We still love those and hold those up as, but just we're always also trying to find ways to be better and adjust and constantly be improving. Um, I believe it was Booker No who once said that, you know, the day I walk into the Rick house and I taste a barrel and I say it's a perfect whiskey, it's when I need to get out of the business. Sure. Because, yeah, you can be proud of it, it can, be a, it can be a damn good product, but you should always be finding ways that you can adjust it and improve and tweak. Right, and I think, you know, there's, there's a temptation in the distilling world because you are there with your process, you're there with your materials, in a somewhat regularly scheduled pattern. And it's easy, like when you get into that pattern to get comfortable with it mm -hmm. and to focus on things like, hmm, how can we make more money on this? Or how can we, how can we scale this from a, you know, a 50 gallon batch to a 500 gallon batch? Like, is this, you know, those, and those are, you know, good questions to ask. Um, but usually I like to, I like to be facing those questions because I've, I've created something that is so popular all of a mm -hmm. sudden and unexpectedly. And that, and it's got that popular because of, you know, the, the work, the constant work of like tweaking. You exactly. Know? And I, one of the reasons I fell in love with distilling and, you know, as I developed within the industry, I made that decision that I wanted to focus more on the distillation side versus the marketing or even the cocktail side is because distillation is this beautiful marriage of science and art. Mm -hmm. And you have to have those processes in place. I mean, it's, you have to have a replicable, repeatable process. And especially things like the absinthe and the Jennifer uh, or the liqueurs or the occasional Amaro's we do, as soon as you introduce botanicals, you're introducing variability. Mm -hmm. And I've always said, and one of the reasons that I was honored to take over the absinthe and always wanted to distill absinthe prior to coming here was, it's a way to show off how good of a distiller you are. I mean, it's a total ego flex. All right, so talk about that. Why, why yeah. is absinthe so, it, it's kind of like, I'm trying to think of a, of a comparison in like the athletic space or like the tech space or something like that. But yeah, t talk about why it's, it's, um, it's, it's like that. Well, so I always tell people in terms of flavor development, and you have experience with this as well with, uh, with the embitterment bitters is, there is essentially an infinite number of ways that you can approach a flavor profile. And that can be insanely overwhelming. I mean, if you're establishing a new product, with absinthe, you have the advantage of things like you have preset, this has to be in it for it to be absinthe. Uh, we talk about what's called the holy trinity, which is what makes absinthe absinthe. That's grand wormwood, green uh, anise, and fennel seed. Mm -hmm. So like, those three, if you want to call your absinthe true absinthe, they need to be in there. Okay, we have three set ones, but even in those three set botanicals, what are our proportions? Do we want it to be softer and rounder with fennel? Do we want it to be sharper and more licorice and black licorice forward with the uh, green anise? Do we want it to be more bitter with the wormwood? Okay, now what other adjacent flavors? So you work on dialing those in and it's this game of millimeters of just tweak and adjust and tweak and adjust. And then you've established it. Okay, awesome. We have a great product. People love it. It's selling. Now we have to do it again. Yep. 
<laughs> exactly. And to to me, that's why things like absinthe are are challenging and frustrating and amazing and fulfilling and why I love being a distiller is because, okay, yeah, it's easy to do some one-off brilliance. It is a lot more difficult to keep coming back in and making sure that that brilliance stays steady every single time. Right. And then there's also questions, uh, you know, like, so for example, with our lavender bitters, one of the things that I learned, and I learned it the hard way, uh, is that there is a secret number there's a secret number that these botanical distributors have. They don't list it on any of their materials. They don't list it on their online listing for the product when you, you know, put it in the shopping cart and then place the order. But there is a essentially like a purity index for organic super grade lavender. And basically literally what somebody does is when they get that lot number in a big old truck or container or whatever it is, they take a standardized amount and then they they put it on like a little, you know, petri dish and literally mm -hmm. count how many flowers are in there relative to how many leaves are in there. They'll do that a couple times and that'll be your number. Well, you know, I, I was buying the same exact product from the same exact company, but two different years and mm -hmm. but they might've been getting them from two different farms or, you know, uh, again, something that's completely beyond my control, but now, you know, that is a dedicated part of our ingredient sourcing. We're like, all right, I need to know, I need to have that, uh, that sort of confidence, so I actually have to call them up before I place an order and say, listen, what, when I place this order today, what lot number is going to be drawing from? What's mm -hmm. the purity uh, reference on that? And it's like, blows your mind. Oh, yeah. It is, it's so granular and fiddly. <laughs> and <laughs> you can't, and yeah, until you are like in the middle of it, you don't really appreciate the amount of attention. And then also being able to utilize those sources, but also there's an entirely possible that, yeah, you have the same purity level, but maybe you're going to have fewer essential oils mm -hmm. in that batch. And so you're constantly tasting. And then you also have to have that knowledge then that you've developed where you go, okay, I can identify what's off about this and this is how we can fix it. Right. And, and finding again, that kind of consistency and, and with, with distilleries, our size, you know, some of that inconsistency can be somewhat built into the appeal as well. Mm. We're single source with 99% of our uh, substrates. Like what we distill with our grains, our cane, our, um, our cider that we use for our brandies, it comes from one source. And you can almost create a sense of terroir with it. Um, it's one of the reasons we do batch numbers is we will do everything in our power to make it consistent but there are some things that are just 100% out of our control because we are focused on this kind of hyper-local, um, single-source distillation style. Yeah. There's a, there's a quote that I really like, and I think it's usually attributed to John Stuart Mill. And the, the quote goes like this. It says, I would not give a fig for the simplicity on this side of complexity, but for the simplicity on the other side of complexity, I would give everything. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a corollary when it comes to consistency in spirits and, and batching, uh, because what you'll see is really sophisticated Scotch enthusiasts, Japanese whiskey enthusiasts, bourbon enthusiasts will go out of their way and, and what they'll do is they'll find these crazy, they will literally crack a distiller's 
SKU number, their code on the bottle, which the distillers have to put there literally for tracking and recall purposes. Mm -hmm. But then these, these enthusiasts will go in there, they'll crack that, and they'll find out what, how to identify what what distinguishes one batch from another. And then they will identify really amazing batches that are perhaps head and shoulders above what the normal batch is. And then all of a sudden you will see a demand for that batch mm -hmm. of these, you know, really premium scotches or bourbons or what have you. And so if the really sophisticated people, <laughs> if the people who really know their spirits are going out of their way to seek out individual batches, why shouldn't we as craft distillers be looking to you know, take advantage of somewhat of that too? And of course, there's the desire for consistency, right? Because mm -hmm. if you can't get any sort of consistency, you're garbage. You, well, you're exactly. bad at your job. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? As I always say, it's a, it's a fine balance. Um, with, with us, it's always been, there's going to be some slight variances from batch to batch, but when you pour that into your glass and you sit there and you take a sip, you're going to be able to go, that's 10th Ward Absinthe. Mm -hmm. I know that for a fact. Yeah, it may have, maybe it's a little bit sweeter this time around because there was a lot more volatile oil within the uh, petite wormwood they used in coloration. Maybe it's a little bit more vegetal because they got a really over-dried batch of lemon balm. But it's still that ability to go, this is the this is the profile that they have developed and mm -hmm. it's easily identifiable as such yeah it's kind of like a vibration almost like mm -hmm. you, you you can you can identify a frequency or a pitch and even if there's some slight you know very even if the standard deviation of the notes is a little bit different than it normally is you've still got that kind of the, the average the mean still operates at a at a really established resonance and it's weird to compare flavor to sound but uh like when when you get something on your palate especially something as complex as an absinthe or a gin, a, a gin any of these mm -hmm. uh products where there's botanicals at play i tend to think of it like a chord and it's not a chord with like three notes <laughs> it's a chord with like a bazillion right uh, to me, I always, I've always tried to liken it to um, the like rocket pops, you know, that have multiple layers of flavor uh. in a single. That's always been my goal, even with our, our like our whiskeys and everything, but especially with our um, heavily aromatized or botanical-driven spirits. Is I love a spirit that I can come to, and I can take one sip. And it's going to be layers. I'm going to get, oh, okay, yeah, there's anise. But wait a minute, what's that falling behind anise? Okay, uh -huh. now we're getting floral. Okay, what's that spiciness? Okay, we've got mace now. Mm. Okay, bitterness. All right, bitterness. What do we have in there that's going to be bitter? We have this, this, and this. Like, to be able to walk through a journey in that spirit, even drinking it neat, I think is the sign of, to me at least, again, coming back to my ethos and the ethos of Tenth Ward is, we're going to take you on a journey and we're going to help you be able to define those. And we're going to work towards having those distinctive layers and have that note of, or maybe like a parfait would be a better comparison where uh -huh. you are getting each of those flavors individually, but you're also experiencing them all together at the same time. And that forms its own unique flavor profile as well. Yeah, that is Really intriguing. I really love those those visual <laughs> and auditory metaphors for flavor. Uh, so we're talking with uh, Mark Viertaler over here at Tenth Ward Distilling. We're going to be right back. And the reason why we're going to be right back is because folks listening out there in audio land, 
we are recording a good amount of video with this podcast. So we're gonna do a quick little scene change. Uh, we're gonna grab a couple more props and then we're gonna be right back to talk about the history of absinthe. All right, um, so we're gonna talk a little bit right now about um, the history of absinthe and how to approach absinthe. So uh, what I'm gonna start doing now for those of you who are listening is we have a traditional absinthe fountain set up with our ice water. Uh, we have two of our Pontelier uh, goblets set up. Basically, these are goblets that have little reservoirs in the bottom of them. Uh, these kind of a little bit more uh, came about towards the end of Absinthe's heyday. Traditionally, Absinthe would have been enjoyed not with the fountain, not with the specific Pontelier glass, but with a carafe that had been of water that had been frozen and allowed to thaw a little bit and a wine glass. Um, this kind of came up as you got towards the end of the 19th century, 1800s, again, pushing towards the ban in the early 1900s. But what I'm going to start doing is I'm going to turn each of these spigots on the side, and we want a slow, consistent drip coming from them. And while that's happening, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of absinthe, but again, for those of you who are watching the video, this is kind of where the magic of absinthe takes place, is what you're going to see is you're going to see this clear emerald green spirit start to cloud. And that's called Lelouch, and that is a sign of a true absinthe. So it's also a way to make the consumption of absinthe much more palatable. Mm -hmm. um, absinthe does go into the bottle anywhere between 60, or excuse me, between, yeah, 60 to 75% ABV. So between 120 proof and 150 proof. Uh, so general rule of thumb, you never want to drink absinthe straight out of the bottle. Yeah. You do want to loose it. Um, but yeah, so absinthe, again, like we had talked a little bit about earlier, is one of the reasons I love it so much is it has such an amazing history to mm. it. Um, like a lot of other spirits that were coming about in the 17, 16, 17, 1800s, it was medicinal. Probably the apocryphal story uh, is that there was actually a doctor uh, who uh, they thought he invented it in, uh, it was Pierre Ordinaire. Uh, it was a French doctor. He was in Cuvée, Switzerland. Okay. Um, 1792 is when they claimed that he invented it. More likely, um, there's some historic records that show that actually some of the nuns that were there in Cuvée in Switzerland had actually been creating this medicinal spirit that utilized grand wormwood that was anise-flavored. Again, like a lot of other kind of history or any other pieces of information of drinking history, there's a lot of conjecture, not a lot of solid fact. Right. What is known, though, uh, 1797, the doctor did actually sell his recipe for absinthe to Pernod. For those of you who probably know, Pernod fees. So Pernod, in the early 1800s, pushing into the middle of the 19th century, they were the number one producer of absinthe. Um, they moved their production facilities to France and quickly ended up taking off as not a medicinal drink, but like a lot of people discovered with things like Benedictine and Amari and... Chartreuse, Chartreuse, Genepi. exactly. Okay, there's medicinal benefits, but 
man, this is really fun to drink <laughs> recreationally, which is what we want to do with it now. Yeah. Similar at the same time is when you saw a massive um, pest blight on the French grapevines. I love phylloxera. Oh, it, exactly. It, I mean, it was a dick move on our part. Oh, totally. It was an accident. It was it was a dick accident. Uh, but man, it just it's so funny when I go back and try to trace the history of my favorite spirits, cocktails, whatever. Somehow it's it's like the Wikipedia game to get to like Hitler or right, whatever it is. Right. How it's many like, times can it's you? like how many clicks to get to Hitler? How many clicks to get to Phylloxera? Right. And it's usually not that many. No, it was such a major shift for the the beverage industry, and mm -hmm. that just brings back how much beverages have been tied in with human history. Uh, there's a quote that the history of alcohol is the history of humanity. I mean, there sure. are some archaeologists yeah. who argue we probably didn't settle to become uh, farmers, to become bread makers. It's because we figured out we could make beer and wine and spirits and brandies. And, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so basically uh, this all kind of came to be that, okay, we saw this massive influx, this huge jump in popularity of absinthe. So you saw more and more distilleries within France producing absinthe. So absinthe- Sugar beet usually? Um, so usually brandy actually. Um, brandy, sugar beet, or on the very rare occasion, grain. Okay. Most of what was coming out was whatever was left over that they could distill up to a high enough proof that they felt comfortable that they could then go about the infusion. Oh, that's right. Because, you know, with, with winemakers, a lot of it doesn't necessarily have to do with just having grapes. Like a lot of the, I guess, the ethos of a wine house or vineyard is the, the age of the vines, right? So even, exactly. all right, so all right, let's say phylloxera does come and wipe out all the vines. Well, five years later, they got grapes again. Mm -hmm. They're just not quite up. So that, that does make sense that they would still be using grapes for it, but it would be a grape-based distillate. Right. Basically, and they would look and see whatever they could have easy access to that would be the most affordable. Mm -hmm. um, the idea would be you came into it with as neutral of a spirit as possible. Uh, similar to the theory behind gin production, you want your base spirit to be the canvas on which you paint the botanicals. Now, that's not to discredit the base spirit as well, because uh, for us, we use a neutral cane. Uh, so it, that naturally has some of those uh, more molasses-like notes in the undertones of it. Um, I believe it's St. George produces, out in California, they produce a brandy-based and so theirs has a distinctive brandy-like quality to those undertones. So every layer of it is important to the production process, but at the time it was what can we get our hands on, what can we distill, what can we do to make sure we're producing enough. Right. And so because you saw this huge uptick, especially heading into the, the mid-1800s, absinthe became so much more accessible. It became so much more affordable. And because people were drinking fewer bottles of wine because of the challenges faced by a rapidly dying um, vi uh, viticulture scene, you saw this shift over into absinthe. In fact, it became so popular that they started referring to 5 p.m. as la Verde, the green hour. The green so hour. Five o'clock, you would get off of work, you would go to the cafe, you would go to Montmartre, and... You would join your friends and you would pour a little bit of absinthe and you would have your louche and you would be able to sit and enjoy it. 
The thing is, much like countless other things in history, because certain people decided they really enjoyed this spirit, in particular the Bohemians in France at the and time. Those French surrealist poets. Exactly. All these, all these early day hippies <laughs> deciding that they don't, they're taking a vow of poverty and it's all about art and purity. Well, because the French wine growers had a lot of money and were hurting because of the growth of absinthe, and because social conservatives were coming in, pushing for um, just an in general uh, prohibition of alcohol, absinthe quickly became the go-to scapegoat for mm -hmm. it. And so what you saw was a very concerted smear campaign come across that basically would say, oh, no, 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 absinthism is different than alcoholism. Absinthe is the devil. I mean, so absinthe includes wormwood. Wormwood is in the Bible. It's bitter. It came up and sprung up in Satan's footsteps, supposedly. So it just all tied in with this story of absinthe isn't just another alcoholic drink. It causes people to commit suicide. It caused Van Gogh to cut off his ear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and what they ended up utilizing as this kind of straw man at the end of the day was a gentleman who ended up killing his wife, his kids, and then tried to kill himself at the end of it after he had had a glass of absinthe. Now, what the lawmakers and the activists failed to mention was that prior to that glass of absinthe, he had around 10 bottles of wine, several pints of beer, 10 bottles of wine. Yes. And this was about a two or three day drunk, it was a I believe. Yeah, okay. It was, it a, was bender. a fine, fine. He was on a bender. And what ended up happening was he had this one glass of absinthe, killed his family, tried to kill himself, but it wasn't everything else that he consumed up to that point. <laughs> it, it, it was the absinthe. That's what did it. So then in 1914, France banned absinthe. And that kind of kicked off then the uh, domino effect of a number of other European countries banning absinthe. And of course, absinthe was banned in the U.S. with the passing of Prohibition. Yep. And 1914, there were some other things going on in France, too. Yes. <laughs> yes, you know. <laughs> so it's, it's a what nice else? time to slide in. It's Well, the, the World War I was a really good excuse to slide in legislation. That's true. Because the same reason that, you know, uh, Prohibition got passed in the United States was, hey, you know, the war effort. We need these grains going mm -hmm. to, to feed the troops or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I like the kind of allegorical nature of the ban of absinthe because it's a real day parable for us today. Mm -hmm. We think we're safe, right? And I, I don't want to be an alarmist. I'm certainly, like, I try not to be an alarmist in general, <laughs> but like we think we're safe, right? And so did people back before prohibition, kinda, mm -hmm. you know. But then, you know, there you just need a few of these things to to click together for, you know, one of these regulatory backlashes. And I think to me, one of the important ingredients is that there was an active social memory of a different time, mm -hmm. um, especially with these, you know, these the the wealthy elite who remembered a time when it was all good and there was lots of wine available. Um, basically just rich haters. Mm -hmm. And so as long as there are rich haters <laughs> who remember a time when this was not like it was and they liked it better, even if that wasn't the case, even if they're just imagining that they liked it better, there's a chance that this sort of thing can happen. So, you know, I, I 
you know, the regulatory conversations can be maybe a little boring or dry or kind of like feel like history class, especially when there's a beautiful glass of absinthe mm -hmm. sitting in front of us waiting to be tasted. But I think they're important conversations to have because if we forget about this shit, it's going to happen again. Exactly. And that's, and that's the thing is there's so many lessons that can be learned from, especially absinthe has some very telling comparisons to another currently regulated green substance within the United States. Uh, it's at risk of becoming political. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a lot of misinformation out there, and there's a lot of misinformation mm. out there about absinthe. Right. Um, Reefer madness. Yeah, I mean, it was at that level. It was, mm. uh, and it all stemmed from this idea of wormwood. So to talk a little bit about the technical side of absinthe, as yes. we had mentioned, for it to be called absinthe, it has to have the Holy Trinity and Grand Wormwood, which is a key component of absinthe, contains a chemical called thujone. And thujone was thought to be the culprit. It was thought to be what caused hallucinations. It was thought to be psychotropic. It was people claimed that again, that's what caused Van Gogh to cut off his ear and to go insane. And, Never mind, he was addicted to opium and, and depressed. And, and probably some stuff in the paint well, back then, right? Well, lead. He was, yeah, there was lead yeah. in the paint. He was syphilitic. I mean, there's all these things, but it all came back to because these people who had issues tended to gravitate to this one specific style of spirit. And this continued through. I mean, absinthe, technically absinthe has been legal in the U.S. always, but what made it illegal was the level of thujone. So the U.S. government essentially said, even post-prohibition, well, we know Thujo's in Wormwood, we know Wormwood's in Absinthe, so we can't have Absinthe here because any level of Thujone is unsafe. And it was actually by the efforts of some very motivated Absinthe aficionados here in the U.S. who basically kind of brought it to the attention of lawmakers, well, Absinthe's technically illegal, it's just this Thujone content, so regulate Thujone, don't regulate Absinthe. And so in 2007 is when we kind of finally went, oh, okay, the U.S. can have real absinthe again. Like, it can be produced here, it can be sold here, but think about that. From Prohibition to 2007, this particular spirit was banned and unable to be accessed in the U.S. because of misinformation. Uh, for a while in the 70s, they thought Thujone was psychotropic because it sh has a very similar chemical bond to THC. Like, if you look at them side by side, they're very similar. So, clearly, because they're similar, they had to have similar effects. So, that's just it, is there's even the argument that people will make in terms of, well, pre-ban absinthe. That was, no man, that was stronger. That was, that would just make you completely trip. But like, actually, if you look, if you look at produced or absinthe that was produced by responsible distilleries, you're going to have the same levels of thujone that you have now. You just really have to work pretty hard to get over the parts per million per drink to get above that. Really what happened though is, because the demand was so high and the demand for cheap was so high, kind of like what you're seeing now, unfortunately, in some of these uh, poorer countries that have resort cities where people are dying from right. uh, tainted alcohol, that's what was happening, is you started to see you know, less ethical bartenders start to make their own in-house absinthe utilizing turpentine and embalming fluid and gunpowder and 
So, yeah, there was a lot of horrible crap going on historically with absinthe, but there always has been so long as people can counterfeit right. yeah, that's, spirits that are in high demand. It's kind of a, a side eddy of the entire regulatory debate. Right, right. So we're going to take another quick break, do another quick reset, and we'll be right back to taste this awesome milky green, louched, nicely diluted and chilled 10th Ward absinthe. All right, we are back, and now that we've learned sort of about the history, about the uh, kind of approach that Tenth Ward takes to absinthe, uh, why don't you take us through a, a tasting of this? Let's nose it. Let's let's give it a taste, and and um, as we do this, let's kind of explain to listeners, you know, what the notes in yours are and what they can you know look for out on the market, you know, especially if they're not here in the Mid Atlantic and they want to go pick up a, a different bottle of absinthe. Yeah, definitely. So we've gone through uh, the proper. Uh, Lushing of the product now. Some people tell you you need to do a specific ratio. Uh, kind of the standard is a three to one, three parts water to one part absinthe. Some people prefer as high as five to one. I will admit I have a soft spot for a one to one. Um, I like those really volatile oils. I like those kind of heavier notes. This, what we have in front of us right now, is about a two to one. Mm -hmm. Really what you're looking for is you're utilizing that water to bring the proof down, to make it a little bit more palatable, and you're also going to open up the oils that are within that absinthe. Um, something to be aware of heading into it is uh, those three specific ingredients that I mentioned, the Holy Trinity, all three of them, but in particular the uh, green anise and the fennel are high in what's known as anethol. Anethol is what you smell and taste when you smell and taste black licorice. Right. So a true absinthe, you are going to have those notes. You're going to get those black licorice notes, but it's not going to be as heavy as, say, like a star anise or even something as heavy as like a, an ouzo or a pastis. Right. Those are meant to be much more... What you want in a good absinthe is you want something that you get those black licorice notes but it's herbal. You want it to be a little bit softer. You want to get layers in it. You want to be able to kind of get a feel that you're not just drinking something that is a wallop of black licorice right in your face. Another thing to make note of is absinthe is not a liqueur. There is no added sugar in this. For it to be absinthe, it cannot have added sugar. So, mm -hmm. And is that different than um, some of the absinthe replacements that were made in the U.S.? Correct. So like Pastis, for example, um, or Pernod are actually liqueurs. Mm -hmm. um, so pretty, pretty major difference, especially in a moment when we get into the cocktail side of things. Exactly. Um, the other thing to keep in mind uh, with those is... Whereas, obviously, they didn't have wormwood in them so that they would not be confused for absinthe, and that was kind of the sticking point. They also tended to have um, star anise. Uh, it's not unusual to have star anise in absinthe, but in very small quantities. Mm -hmm. Whereas with the, uh, a lot of the replacements, you saw the star anise bump up. And then also utilizing licorice root as well. Right. So. And licorice root has that strange property where it kind of is a sweetener. Exactly. Even if it's you know, not in the, the traditional way we normally think about it. So let's, let's say on the nose here, let me tell you what I'm getting. Mm -hmm. Tell me if I'm broken or if... I'm a generally functioning sensory being. <laughs> uh, the first, the first note that comes to mind to me here is green, mm -hmm. and this is just like, you know, you say, uh, you say, you know, green anise is is that 
for folks listening, how, how do you distinguish that from like a star anise? Um, um, so same name, completely different plants. Um, that's the thing to keep in mind is um, if you've gone into the store and you see like those big bulbs um, that'll may sometimes say uh, anise bulbs, those are technically fennel bulbs. Mm-hmm. Whereas anise is kind of a... I'm trying to think of the best adjective, kind of a spindly plant mm-hmm. that the seeds themselves are then harvested out of and dried for right. utilization. Star anise, well, they have the same name and have similar flavor properties, completely different plant, completely different genus, and of course, kind of the traditional what you think of those star pods. Right, right, right. Yeah, so that's interesting. I mean, I, I, I get, it's the first note is like green. You get um, Definitely a fennel quality, mm-hmm. uh, and you know I use fennel seed in a number of our bitters formulations, and, and usually pretty small amounts. But um, but this kind of reminds me if you've ever gone to the you know Indian Pakistani restaurant and you on your way out grab that spoon and uh, you grab a little handful of candied fennel seeds. I get mm-hmm. candied fennel in this, mm-hmm. uh, and then you know the other. I guess tangential aroma note that I get is a little bit of lemongrass style fruit loopiness. Mm-hmm. And I think that is also pretty true to category, especially when loose, right? Yes. So um, good nose on that. So that is actually one of the things that we utilize in our, uh, our absinthe that makes it unique is we actually do use bergamot as in the bergamot citrus, not the plant. And to me, bergamot has always had a very distinctive fruit loop like quality to it. And, what you'll get, I feel, with ours, as opposed to maybe some of the more traditional styles that you will see out there, is you're going to get that citric note. You're going mm-hmm. to get those floral notes. Whereas with more traditional styles, you are going to see more of the heaviness on the fennel side. Mm-hmm. A little bit of background, so as you're kind of nosing it and tasting it, we do produce our absinthe in the traditional French style, which does mean that we start out with our neutral cane spirit base. We take what we call our digestion herbs. That's grand wormwood, green anise, fennel. We also utilize, um, I made sure I brought my recipe up so I could remember. We also utilize um, a little bit of star anise, Mm -hmm. like we had talked about. And then we actually add chrysanthemum and mace into the digestion. And then that all of that goes into our um, still. And then we bring it up into just below 160. We let that sit for about 13, 14 hours. What you're doing during digestion is because we are using such volatile oils and such heavy botanicals, by doing digestion, uh, by heating it up, we actually are able to start breaking down and extracting those volatile oils a lot faster. If we were to just let it sit for two weeks or so, it would have the same impact, but we start to pull out those chlorophylls. It starts to become too astringent. It starts to have that unpleasant vegetal earthy note on it. For coffee fans out there, this is similar to the bloom. If you're yes. if you've ever done uh, you know a, a proper pour over, it's it's you know you want to get it started, but but not you know completely initiate the the distillation or the pour over you know where you're ex- at, extracting the the lion's share of it. Right. It's kind of like the it's almost like the the digestive the the digestive corollary would be like well digestion actually starts in the mouth right. where the saliva starts breaking things down but in a much more gentle way than the <laughs> freaking acid in your stomach. Exactly. And so once we've done that, we distill it out. Uh, it's distilled in a pot setup. 
Usually with that, we take about 30% of what we now have, what's called a perfumed spirit. Mm -hmm. We take that perfumed spirit, we pull the 30% aside, and then we blend in our coloration herbs. And so those are the traditional uh, Melissa, also known as lemon balm, hyssop, we do utilize petite wormwood, and then we also do add the bergamot into mm. the actual coloration process. I love lemon balm. I know. So that is what gives, if you want to know what gives a true absinthe its deep green, that's the lemon balm. Mm -hmm. The lemon balm and the petite wormwood are where you're going to get a lot of that green. So what I always tell people, a true absinthe is going to have kind of a deeper emerald to olive to dead leaf color to it. Mm -hmm. Because a true absinthe, you just utilize the chlorophyll from those coloration herbs in order to extract it. If you're, you've seen an absinthe that's on the counter and it is bright neon green, it's faux absinthe. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's uh, there's, and, a, there's a lot of ways that you can add color to stuff. And oh, the, totally. the best way is usually with the, the actual natural ingredients. Mm -hmm. And but it, it's pretty, you know, it, it's, first of all, there's not a ton of liquor stores out there that just have a huge range of absinthe. So right. it, it should be pretty apparent to you when you see that kind of like artificial, like almost like a uh, sour apple green. Yes, exactly. I was going to say, or yeah, the apple, apple pucker. pucker. Yep, yeah. Like if, you, if the, your bottle of absinthe looks like apple pucker, that is not mm -hmm. a good indicator of a high quality absinthe. Yeah. <laughs> but the other reason we do it like that is, as I talked about like way at the beginning in terms of honoring the history and the people who have figured out when you do it in this very thoughtful process, when you do it very softly, very delicately, what you end up with is a very nuanced product at the end of it. Mm -hmm. If you, I've always said distilling has taught me patience. I'm not naturally a very patient person, <laughs> but things like whiskey, you have to sit and you have to wait, you have to let it mature. The same thing even with absinthe. With absinthe, it takes me three full days of distillation, like basically from the beginning of two distillation, two coloration, and then another two to three weeks where it just sits mm -hmm. before we even rack it off and bottle it. Yep. We allow that sediment to settle, yep. scoop off the top. But at that same point, because of all of those super volatile chemicals, you have to give them time to marry. Mm -hmm. um, if you just immediately go into a bottle, you end up with really aggressive, really biting, really astringent properties. And it's just a matter of letting oxidation take place and letting mm -hmm. those chemicals bond and just letting it take that time so that what you have is something that you can go, oh, wow, this is nuanced and complex. And right. Just absolutely, in my opinion, beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it is really beautiful. I really love the, the mace note mm -hmm. that comes in on the palette, I think, it can be something that's used really well or really poorly. It's it's a big, uh, pronounced, aggressive flavor with both flavor characteristics, but also some of those chemesthetic properties where it's got like a little bit of the numbing, spicy right. aspect to it. And when you're already sticking that in a very high proof spirit, you know, you kind of got to make sure that you, you loosh appropriately. But um, man, is it a pleasure to drink? And, you know, you said, you. you know, it's traditionally, you know, three or four to one, you mm -hmm. know, three to five to one. I'm enjoying this two-to-one yeah. just fine. And that, to me, I think it depends on it depends on the botanical bill, and mm. it depends on the quality of the distillation, and it also depends on the style that you prefer. This is a really good introductory absinthe, um, and that's kind of what we wanted to design. We wanted to create something that 
for someone who may not have a lot of experience with absinthe and may have kind of all these misconceptions about it's going to be hallucinogenic or it's you set it on fire or all these other things. Like how do yep. we create something that is going to please both seasoned absinthe drinkers and also people who are, are new to it and mm-hmm. need to find a way to make it much more accessible? Because for me, obviously, I'm biased. It's, it's my absinthe. It's our absinthe. It's 10th Ward's. It's the one I'm always going to go to, but I do enjoy absence that are a lot heavier and a lot more aggressive and have that sharpness of the anise over the fennel. And like we had talked about earlier in terms of balance, you know, those are things you consider as well going into distillation. While fennel and anise and star anise all have that similar black licorice flavor, each one has very different characteristics. Fennel's very soft, very round. It To me, every time like a high fennel absinthe or something that utilizes fennel in cooking. It's like my mouth is wrapped in a blanket. Like it's just this kind of lovely warming. And anise is sharper. It has, can almost have a metallic note Mm -hmm. to it. And so you have to be careful with that. You have to find ways to balance those. Mm -hmm. Um, Star anise uh, is used a lot in um, Asian cooking, you know, especially in like uh, pho and Mm -hmm. Vietnamese cooking. And so you have more of an earthy, not quite a sharp, not quite a soft note. And so I would always recommend, you know, most distilleries probably aren't going to give you the proportions, but we're big believers in transparency. So we tell you everything that's in it. Yeah. Just not what proportion we distill at. but experiment with other absinths mm-hmm. and, and see what you like. There are some really amazing domestic absinths out there now too. And, and that's what's encouraged me as someone who's been a longtime absinthe fan, even before I even had designs on becoming a distiller, even when, uh, when absinthe was re-legalized, you had access to a lot of garbage. Right. <laughs> and right. No, that's and again, like back, going back to our regulatory conversation, that's what happens. You ban something, and then oh, we realize the ban was a bad idea. Duh. <laughs> uh, and then all that's left is garbage. Right. The first people who rush to get something out are not going to get something out that's useful, or if they've had it in other secondary markets, they're not going to bring, you know, their A game to the U.S. market, which. When we go big, we go big. So the U.S. market just tends to be a primary market for many people. Right. Yeah. I I think Absinthe is experiencing somewhat of a renaissance, and I think we are lucky in that respect. Uh, And I I do think, you know, nothing against people who mess around with Amaro or liqueurs, but you know what? There's a reason why those are a little bit easier than Absinthe, and that reason is sugar. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's, again, nothing on it because there's specific uses, especially, you know, in my world, in the cocktail world, you're not going to use an absinthe the same way you're going to use an Amaro. So it is, to a certain extent, apples and orange. But when you're talking about aromatized botanical products that require perhaps a pre-maceration, perhaps a complex distillation, perhaps a secondary maceration after distilling, I think absinthe is the more challenging thing for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I, th- I think it makes sense that absinthe is taking a little bit longer than our Amaro craze um, <laughs> because it is. It's, you know, like the fact that we had to bring in this little apparatus right. to, to, to make it palatable, <laughs> but it, it made it more than palatable. It's like, I want to crush this right now. <laughs> it, it can sneak up on you. It is one of my favorite, if I need low key, I just want to enjoy something at the end of work. Just an absinthe louche is because it's complex. It, I, I will admit, I'm enough of a hipster. I occasionally smoke a pipe, like a tobacco pipe, 
And more than anything, I think I got into it because it, there was theater involved with mm-hmm. it. It's the it's a process. You have to properly pack it and the tobacco mm-hmm. choice. And mm-hmm. and I feel that the absinthe is a similar thing. Is sure. It takes it's kind of a harken back to a less rushed lifestyle. And it's that idea of at the end of the day, you're going to take this time that maybe you're not going to make a cocktail. You're going to take something though, and you're going to be patient with it and you're going to watch it evolve and you're going to, mm-hmm. you've got, you can literally, you're literally titrating. Yes, exactly. With, with the turn of this little, this little screw, you're, you're making a little micro adjustments and that's the same thing that a, that a bartender does. And it, you know, it reminds me kind of like, you know, you're, you're painting this picture, right? Of a simpler time, mm-hmm. a, a time when things are slower, you know, you're picturing, uh, some people sitting perhaps on a screened porch in New Orleans, uh, lovely French influence, lots of absinthe flying around. Uh, and you know, you have the discussion of how do you take your absinthe? Exactly. And in that respect it's very similar to like, Oh, uh, sugar tea for your coffee or or, uh, sugar or milk for your coffee or your tea. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's in that conversation. And I think it, 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 it's a really beautiful, uh, option to still have that control, but not have to be concerned about complexity in the same way you are with the cocktails. Exactly. It's it's a level of complexity minus the steps. Because mm-hmm. um, the distiller built it in for you. Right. And a good and you make a good point in terms of sugar, in terms of coffee and tea. You have that exact debate with an absinthe. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those of you who might be watching the video, you'll notice I did our luching without the traditional spoon and mm-hmm. the cube. Because that's how I prefer to take it. Um, right. I will always, like I've always told our staff, if people come in and ask for the recommended way, my suggestion is always without the sugar cube. Specifically right. because to be a little bit nerdy about you know the chemical change that happens in distillation, wormwood is insanely bitter. I mean, aggressively, pungently bitter. I have to be careful when I'm distilling because if I pour it too fast and I have some dust come up, it nukes my palate for the rest mm-hmm. of the day because it just dominates everything. But when wormwood is macerated and digested and then distilled, it creates this wonderful soft sweetness, mm-hmm. this sudden transformation of bitter into sweet. And so to me, I don't need that extra sweet. But as I tell our, our staff here at the tasting room and I tell anybody who's curious about absinthe, that is not the wrong way to do it. If you want a sugar cube, you do it. Right, Because you can actually get some wonderful undertones. Some of that uh, heavier, more savory notes of the fennel mm-hmm. are going to move forward if you add the sugar into it. You're going to get a much more pointed contrast from the mace mm-hmm. with the addition of that sugar as well. Sure. So as I always tell people, the best way for you to drink it is how you want to drink it. Right. And just to paint a picture for people with the, the, there are these things called absinthe spoons and they're basically, you know, they're, they're maybe a little bit concave, maybe flat in some cases. And you basically just kind of drape it across the top of the absinthe glass. And, and when you, you know, when you adjust the, the fountain here to, to drip, it goes through the sugar cube. And that is the process of, of, you know, what people have called, you know, chasing the green fairy Mm -hmm. as it goes through the cube and then drips down into the glass. And, uh, you know, you get that, that luching and that, yeah, that beautiful milky color. So, um, yeah, that's, there's a whole, I feel like absinthe spoons and, and and this whole like contraption is like a, a, it deserves its own episode because of the oh, design implications, absinthia, right? Absinthia, like just 
all of the ephemera and memorabilia surrounding absinthe is brilliant. There's so, yep. and again, for for a long time, for a couple of years, I was a theater major <laughs> in college, and I still have a deep love of theater. It's one of the reasons I still love bartending. I still love mm -hmm. being a bartender. It's like being on the stage. So things like this, I will totally admit I am a sucker for as well, because it's the theater of it. It's this uh, creating this time in this place and creating this setting. And it incorporates every single one of your senses too. And I think those are the things that I love as well is anything that can be a total sensory experience is amazing. But by the same token, you can still enjoy absinthe at your house without yeah. <laughs> purchasing you, all of the... <laughs> you can manually loose. You exactly. can figure out your own way to drip. It's not a big it's, deal. Uh, but I don't think I, I, a challenge to listeners out there, find me a minimalist absinthe fountain. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> right. There is, you know, you can get the, um, you can get the drippers that kind of sit over the top and those aren't as effective because to me, an ideal drip is one drop for every 60 seconds. Mm -hmm. um, I will tell people, like if you look at the louche on, on these, it is a lovely milky, green if you hold it up to the light what you should also notice is an opalescence mm -hmm. um, you should kind of get kind of that oiliness that you see suspended in it if you louche too fast if you proof down too fast or with too warm of a water mm -hmm. you end up with a really thin kind of weak looking louche yep. and so cold water is ideal um, also because it cold tends to reduce our aversion to ethanol heat and even at a two to one, you're still at a higher ABV sure. of a spirit. And so those are just things to keep in mind. And the good news is there's a lot of amazing resources out there now that can help uh, educate people on absinthe. The challenge is there's still a lot of terrible information out there. Yeah, the internet doesn't go and... and erase itself no. <laughs> when when something you know when better information comes up um but so for those of you um who are listening uh still uh <laughs> you can head over to the show notes page over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast check out some of the uh the pictures and some of the the video from this podcast episode um before we jump into lightning rounds i do want to talk quickly about uh cocktails and to that end i brought a little prop and this is my atomizer. It is my absinthe atomizer. It's not currently filled with 10th Ward absinthe. It is filled with uh, Mount Defiance absinthe from Middleburg, Virginia. Also an excellent choice. It's very, very good. The first one, the first local one that I came across. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I like to start the cocktail conversation about absinthe with my little trusty atomizer here is because... The Sazerac is the cocktail that we, we need to talk about. It's, it's, you know, it is seated in that historical phylloxera New Orleans mm. switch from brandy to whiskey conversation that happened because we sent some bad vines over to France. <laughs> uh, if we had never done that, we might not have had the Sazerac. And there's two schools of thought uh, in the Sazerac world as, as far as, as far as I've uh, understood it, and one school is the traditional absinthe rinse of the glass, where you know if you, if you go and you have a Sazerac, you you'll see the bartender pour a small measure of absinthe into the glass, and then systematically roll that glass so that the entire inside walls and bottom of the glass are coated, and then they will usually discard the absinthe. Uh, it's 
kind of, I don't know, to me it seems like a waste, mm -hmm. but I think there's something to be said in the hospitality gesture in that like, okay, like we, we are taking enough care to coat this class properly that we, we actually put in too much. We're going to have to throw this out. Mm -hmm. it's, to me, that's a hospitality gesture. Uh, and then the second school uh, is a little bit more precise. Uh, I think it's still looked down upon to atomize your, uh, your Sazerac um, because the, I, I don't know, there's just less, there's a different type of theater in it. And I think because... I don't know. I just I, I think it's still looked down upon, but I really enjoy the the atomizer approach because what it allows you to do is it allows you a to not have to throw out your absinthe because it <laughs> does tend to be a, a, a somewhat expensive spirit. And what I do when when I'm making a sazerac, let's assume that all the other steps in this process are the same as making an old fashioned, but uh, I will spritz the inside of the vessel before I do anything else. I'll spritz the inside, and then when I'm done, right before the lemon twist, I'll give it a couple spritzes right on top. Mm -hmm. So that what I've got in my Sazerac is, yes, I've got the, you know, the same specs as anybody who had rinsed the glass, but then in addition to that, I've got my little aromatic pop right on top, and then I lay the citrus on top of that. Mm -hmm. So it's this like the, so what that does to me after the first couple sips, it's pretty much irrelevant. But for those first couple sips for the approach to the cocktail, you're like, whoa, mm -hmm. you're kind of like, it, it's, it's almost like uh, the theater, yeah. Yeah, you know? I would courteously disagree. I will admit I am of the rolling it in the glass. Um, yeah, no, it breaks my heart to have to <laughs> toss absinthe down. But to me, for my ideal Sazerac, the, it's not just kind of the theater and that hospitality of coating the glass, but you're also working on how you're building those aromatic and uh, flavor layers. And so for me, by rolling the glass in that chilled glass and prepping it and seasoning it, we're essentially creating that base layer for the mm -hmm. cocktail. And so while using that spritz, yeah, definitely brings that and, you know, makes it exceedingly more volatile and really right. brings it, it out. aerates it. Yeah. For me, I like that approach of, oh, I've got that citrus from that lemon twist and I've got all those heavier oils coming right up. And then my first sip, I'm getting the whiskey. And then as I go to it, hmm. I start to feel those more those softer absinthe notes start to push up on the back end. Yeah. They're both delicious ways to drink. They're, they it, are though. both. They are both <laughs> delicious. I would ne I would never I would never fault someone one way or the other. For me it's also kind of like the old fashioned debate. You know, do mm -hmm. you use simple syrup or do you use a sugar cube? Mm -hmm. They're identical. It's sugar and water. But I like the sugar cube because it's the theater of it. Mm -hmm. It's that theater of the muddling and of the <laughs> soaking. It's, and it's also like a, a weird like measurement exactly. tactic, right? Because you can yeah, see it being soaked in the bitters. And, a lot, and see as it starts to degrade so you have mm -hmm. a good idea of when it's ready. Mm -hmm. But no, I think, and honestly, I think there's a great place for absinthe and aromatizers. I think thinking in terms of, yeah, do you want this on your back end? Do you want this on your approach? Mm -hmm. Do you, it's a great tool. We utilize them here at the cocktail lab as well. Mm -hmm. um, we have a couple filled with our house Blanc Vermouth 
and a couple filled with our yep. absinthe as well. That's so. a great place to to use the atomizers. And I think the one thing I will say, and not that I have an opinion on this per se, because I haven't sat down and made like four Sazeracs in like this Punnett Square like debate to figure out if I like it. But there's also a question of whether you're making the uh, Sazerac in the glass or if you are chilling and mixing in a mixing glass and then straining into a glass that was then filled with absinthe. And then like, like you said, you know, you, you made very sure to specify, Oh, a chilled glass. Yes. Well, most people don't chill that glass, Mark. I no. I just went wrong. to a bar and I got <laughs> oh, no, a bad I heard you rant and I high five. I actually, <laughs> I texted some people and I was like, okay, listen to Eric's episode on this. This is why it's important as bartenders that we pay attention to the process. Right. Cause people like Eric and I are going to come in and sit at your bar and go, uh, uh. Yep. <laughs> anyway, that was the uh, that that was the episode on uh, on wash lines. Anyway, if you want to go go back and listen to my bad my bad Sazerac story, but yeah, so I I, I think um, it's ripe for uh, somebody to sit down and make uh, six Sazeracs, six or eight Sazeracs, all made in different ways, and for us all to taste them. So maybe at some point we can do a staff training here at Tenth Ward and make six to ten Sazeracs all in different ways, and then I would love to do that. We're sitting right now, uh, staring at a couple of barrels that actually have my rye in it right oh, now, and you? so I'm so ready for us to have Sazeracs on the menu. <laughs> yes. All right. Cool. Uh, pencil me in for when that happens. But yeah. So uh, I, I guess the I just want to throw out a few other absinthe cocktails for people who are, are looking to use this in in more of a, a mixed drink. Uh, obviously, there's the Sazerac that is is forever going to be the sweetheart of the absinthe cocktail space. The Corpse Survivor number two, I want to mm -hmm. say. Number is, two is usually the most popular. It is my favorite. Uh, that also utilizes absinthe. And uh, what I like about the Corpse Survivor number two is that you're using absinthe in relief of lemon mm -hmm. and orange liqueur. Now, let's talk about the flavor profile of the 10th Ward absinthe. Mm -hmm. Bergamot, the citrus. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you, you also said that you kind of get some of those citric notes. You know, so going back to the earlier part of our conversation, I think this would be excellent in a Corpse Survivor number two because you're already working with some of those notes. And so I feel like your absinthe is a, is a natural fit for that. Have you ever tried it in that? So we actually, so on the menu right now on our auto menu, we have a Corpse Survivor number 10. 10th Ward, um, that we utilize actually a lemon oleo in it. Um, mm -hmm. So That's our nice. thought was because we have that softer, sweeter note of the orange from the bergamot, we we're going to ratchet that acidity mm. way, way up to throw it in sharp relief. Mm -hmm. And it is probably my favorite cocktail on the menu right now. Yeah, super refreshing too in, yeah. in the summertime. Uh, so there's those. Um, there's the absinthe frap. There are you know a few a few different. Um, cocktails that are going to, to to call for it. You know what? To be honest, a lot of the the absinthe cocktails you're going to be coming across in the digital space are going to be cocktails that bartenders have made. Usually, bartenders in towns or cities where they have a distillery producing these craft absinths, and they, mm -hmm. you know, the challenge there is like, hey, wow. All right, I got through my Amaro phase. Now I'm on my absinthe phase. What am I gonna do with this? So, you know, we we listed some of the big ones. Uh, tiki is also another space where you're gonna see absinthe utilized. And, you know, I don't want to get into any of those cocktails here because they require a dozen ingredients and are right. very difficult to to uh, execute. And four different bitters. And but think about think about what that does. Think about what absinthe does in a cocktail that is highly 
funky with rum, sweet with juices and, and orgeats, and uh, often very citrusy. It provides those herbal notes that can tie some of those really aggressive flavors together. And so in the tiki world, where you're not supposed to know how strong your drink is, where it's supposed to be deceptively smooth for how strong it is, absinthe kind of plays like a, a sensical role. It makes sense why they would have gravitated toward this product. So um, for those of you who uh, pick up a bottle of absinthe and might have any um, questions about what to do with it, uh, you can hit up either Mark on social media or, or us here at the podcast, and, and we can certainly walk you through that. But so... I guess I, what I want to say is thank you for letting us drink this, and shall well, we... My pleasure. Thank you so much for coming in. Yes. Shall we lightening it up? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Favorite cocktail? Sazerac. Honestly, uh, that's what I'm always <laughs> going to go back to. It's kind of like asking who your favorite kid is, uh, depending on the season. What I'm going to go back to is going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be between a Sazerac, a Boulevardier, and an Old Fashioned. One, because they're classics, they're spirit forward, they're relatively simple, but they're difficult to make well. Mm-hmm. Old fashioned especially is one of my go-to. If I wanted to see how good a bar is, mm-hmm. I'm going to sit down, I'm going to order an old fashioned, or I'm going to order a Negroni. Okay, these are simple drinks, but very rarely do people get them right. And so yep. being able to knock one of those out, you get an absolutely brilliant idea of how well or how good that bartender is. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, no, Sazerac was one that I think kind of made me fall in love with absinthe. Mm -hmm. Um, As I moved out of, you know, kind of the college stages of shots and terrible vodkas and and what have you. And and my brother actually is the one who kind of got me introduced into the cocktail renaissance and taking this time to be thoughtful. And I have a soft spot for New Orleans. Mm -hmm. I love New Orleans with all of my heart. Got that pineapple on your arm. I've got my I've got the pineapple on my forearm. Um, my my grandparents lived there before I was ever born, but it's just the the it's such a beautiful city and it's so historic and it ties in so many amazing cultures together. And I feel like the Sazerac is kind of the perfect encapsulation of that. And so you have whether you're making it with rye, whether you're making it with cognac mm-hmm. or brandy or it is just so beautiful and so nuanced and so balanced if done correctly <laughs> right. that it's just one I keep coming back to. So you have to gun your head. Um, the gun is loaded, so this is important. Um, you can't go to the Sazerac bar at the Roosevelt. Okay. What bar are you going to in New Orleans to get your Sazerac? Oh, God. <laughs> this was not in the uh, questions oh, I no, said beforehand. Oh, this wasn't. Oh, man, this is... I'm probably going to Canaan Table. Yeah? Yeah. Um, that whole crew there is amazing. Um, I will admit I have not had a Sazerac from Canaan Table, but I did have the best ever Ramos Gin Fizz I've had in my life at Canaan sure. Table. And that gave me... I think that gives me enough uh, confidence to say that is where I would go. Is that on Charter Street? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, I was there earlier this summer. Lion Distilling to, had a, a takeover uh, at oh. Cane and Table. Oh, so excellent. I was, yeah. I was there. We had some great, some great food, some great cocktails there. That's yeah, a, kid, that, the whole team there was just absolutely amazing. If not Cane and Table, I'd feel remiss if I didn't mention uh, Tonic. Bartonique. Yeah, yeah Bartonique, yeah. I think, would probably be up there. It would be between the two of those because, again, just great crews and – Every time I've been in Bartonique, I've also, it's been like wall to wall, crushed, 
trying to get everyone's attention, but they still just absolutely crush it and manage to get amazing cocktails out consistently. Yep. So. Very good. Good recommendations. <laughs> uh, if you were a cocktail ingredient, what would you be and why? Uh, bitters, because a little bit of me goes a long way. <laughs> yeah. I feel it. You, um, you have good energy. Yeah. Yeah. Good energy it's, and good, like, sort of the, you're, you're a dense, long-form person like me. Yeah. Uh, that's why I was excited to have you on the show. Cocktail with anybody in the world, past or present, who would it be? What would you drink? Where would you go? <laughs> so, you know, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this, and um, honestly, it may be, it's probably not going to be like the typical, like, I'm going to sit down with a historic figure. Um Probably my dad. Mm -hmm. um, my dad died unexpectedly about two and a half years ago. Um, kind of came out of nowhere. And uh, dad was a huge, huge supporter of me. Uh, always kind of supported me as I passed through, you know, four or five different careers as I headed to be a distiller. And uh, he was there for my first year, like ever as a distiller. And well, dad was never a big cocktail guy, like was never big. Like he was definitely a beer and occasionally wine type of person. Um, like as, as my professional life developed into distillation and cocktails, uh, he threw himself into it. And that was kind of dad's thing always was for a guy who grew up in a, a tiny couple thousand person town, the Western Plains of Kansas, he, you know, traveled a lot and was always willing to go in. And I think like what I'm doing now in terms of complexity and, kind of being able to dive into spirits I've always wanted to make, I'd like to sit down with him again and kind of get his feedback. And I would love to expose him to things like absinthe and, yeah. and Jennifer. And like, I just, I feel like he would appreciate that. And as for, you know, where truthfully right here, I mean, again, yeah. like it was always, it was like the, the stage parent who was always proud of their kid. We would have special events and I'd be bartending and dad would be there. And he's like, oh, I've never had this cocktail, but I'm going to try it. <laughs> <laughs> so I think being able to show him and show him Frederick and, and, and Maryland and the DMV. And, uh, and as for time now would be nice. Cause that wouldn't mean that he's still around. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no dad, my dad, uh, I'm very much my father's son. Uh, talking to me is a lot like talking to my dad. And so I think, being able to continue to expand his uh, his palate and and absent of that, my my mom thankfully is still around and has been here a couple of times, so at least I've been able to have mom in for nice. some cocktails. Yeah, and I mean just to like to to credit you and the rest of the Tenth Ward team uh, for what you've been able to do in this space, beautiful space. Thank you. Uh, which has become much more beautiful with with all the work that you put into building the bar, building mm -hmm. the cocktail program, the barrel room, and of course the uh, really nice upstairs space where you've been able to host a lot of events. Um, so for folks who are here in the Mid-Atlantic, like you're missing out big time if you don't come out and scope it out because it's beautiful. If you have events that you want to do, you've done several weddings up there and yeah. all that stuff. So it's it's been really, really um, cool to, to be here and to see all that. And we've done actually some classes that have been really yeah. fun here too. So head out to Frederick. There's a lot of great stuff to do and eat and drink here. So that's, that's a fun... Um, day trip for sure. If you've got somebody who's willing to DD, they say there are a lot of uh, Frederick has quickly become a hub for craft beverages. Uh, yes. We have about six distilleries just here in Frederick, yeah. um, about That's a dozen insane. breweries, five or six wineries, yeah. uh, two cideries, and one meadery. Yeah, and so. I, I spend a lot of my time up here as a result. It's yeah, like, it's it's become this beautiful hub for craft, craft mm -hmm. booze, and craft food. I've just 
it's one of the reasons we came here. We fell in love with the city and the county immediately. Yeah. Uh, couldn't agree more with that. Uh, getting into advicey stuff now, uh, mm-hmm. any books that were particularly influential as you've kind of gone through your journey? Oh, man. Um, a lot of them. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like... I feel like you're a drunken botanist guy. Oh, yeah. Um, drunken botanist is one of my go-tos. Yeah. Like when I first got into distilling, um, I will always and forever uh, beat the drum of Liquid Intelligence by Dave Arnold. <laughs> um, I've had the pleasure of drinking with Dave. Um, and is, is it is it how you would expect it to be? It is. Um, that is not a persona. That is Dave. That is, uh, if, you, if you ever listen to Cooking Issues, which is his podcast, which is amazing, Listening to that is like hanging out and having a drink with Dave. Um, Fun story. I called in two weeks ago or something mm-hmm. and asked a call, uh, asked a question about a pepper mill. And the first several words out of his mouth were, okay, do you have access to a 3D printer? <laughs> and I was like, God damn it, Dave. Yeah. And I'm that's, not- <laughs> he is, he is a mad scientist. He, that will always be his, okay, well, uh, my favorite one was when someone called in, uh, asking for advice on uh, cooking times. And he goes, well, okay, my first question is, did you illegally install gas lines in your apartment like I did so that you have commercial kitchen level BTUs? No? Okay. So we're gonna have to pull it back. <laughs> yeah, no, it's guys, absurd. So we got drunk, uh, drunk botanist, liquid intelligence, any others that um, are- Yeah, drunk botanist, liquid intelligence is great. Um, if you're a huge nerd into distilling and like learning how it has developed, I would recommend the book, The Distiller. Mm-hmm. Um, it was written in the 1800s and was really one of the first treatises on mo- what we would consider modern day distillation. It's post-coffee still. Exactly. You're looking at, okay, how can moving away from the farm distilleries to industrial level mm-hmm. distilling as you get to that. Um, the Flavor Bible. Yeah. I would recommend that over and over and over again. I mean, it's just this absolutely wonderful resource where these two researchers sat down and interviewed a couple hundred chefs and were like, all right, bananas, what goes with bananas? (laughs) And they list it and it's this wonderful cross reference. And to me, it's a good basis of if I'm looking for things to challenge and look for contrasting flavors and complementary flavors as well. Um, absinthe wise, again, one of the disadvantages is there is a lot of hot garbage out there and there's a lot of terrible books about absinthe out there too. A lot of them yep. were written in the eighties, seventies, eighties, a lot of misinformation, completely missed the point. Um, there was like no, no culpability back then. Yeah. What is, and, that, what is someone going to do? Go to the library and dig up the one book on absinthe and then call yeah, you out? You had, I mean, absinthe pretty much was legal in the UK and Spain and a handful of other places. And so And it we all left know that the fa- Spaniards like to sleep in the <laughs> afternoons. So we we'll say we also know that we go to the UK for, you know, absinthe. That's what they you think of when you think of the United Kingdom. But um, there is a really uh, excellent book that's called Absinthe History in a Bottle. Uh, it's by Barnaby Conrad the Third. Um, it's a little bit older, so it is a bit out of date, but it's super fascinating because he looks at it from a historical and cultural standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say probably three quarters of it is here's how absinthe influenced art, influenced politics, influenced um, literature and the Bohemian movement. But he does actually, towards the end of the book, have some great information on the history of absinthe and production of absinthe and why it was so controversial and why it got banned. So that's one I'd recommend. Another more modern one is Absinthe, the Exquisite Elixir, 
which is, um, hmm. I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce her name, Bettina, Bettina, B-E-T-I-N-A, uh, Jay Whittles. Um, that one just came out a couple of years ago. Oh, good. Um, so a little bit more modern, kind of glossy in terms of it's very, it's if you want to be nerdy, you want to deep dive, it's not as good. An absolutely amazing reference is the Absinthe Encyclopedia. It is also stupid expensive. Um, it is written like a textbook. It costs like a textbook too. I think the cheapest used one I've been able to find online is 125. But it is very well researched, very well written. Again, there's not much uh, hand wringing and uh, puffery in it about absinthe. If you want a kind of a good idea of that, those are those are all ones I've utilized and have a deep appreciation for. An online resource I'd recommend is Wormwood Society. Um, the Wormwood Society started out as a group of people, as a forum in the early days of the internet, basically with the entire idea of how do we get our hands on absinthe. Um, <laughs> a lot of the people involved with that are also the ones who helped get the laws changed that allow production and importation of actual absinthe. And that's what you want. Yeah. You want, you want those people's perspectives because they'll at least be able to, even if they don't give it to you straight, at least you know they have the capability to give it to you straight because exactly. they've seen the whole 360 degrees of the debate. Yeah, and they've got a great amount of resources. Um, they've translated some old absinthe distilling manuals from French and uploaded them for mm -hmm. free. They can kind of be at risk of being crude. They can kind of disappear up their own ass in terms of reviews and things like that. Um, not that I don't trust them. Um, Brian, who's their head reviewer, is an amazing guy and is very honest and forthright, but kind of like how a long time ago I stopped looking at beer review websites because even the best beers were getting three stars out of five. Sometimes you will see that on that site. Like this is objectively a, you'll look at something like, I know this is an amazing world-class absinthe and someone will give it a two star review and be like, well, I wasn't impressed because the louche was only. Yeah. <laughs> so take everything on it with a grain of salt, but the, the management there, like the people who run the website are great. They're super open. They're a great resource. I mean, the number of times I reached out to Brian in terms of like, hey, can I have some perspective on this? I would definitely recommend those guys. Nice. That's great. Uh, also, last, this is like a weird little uh, plug for me. I usually don't like jump in on this. <laughs> uh, if you want to get some of the French surrealist poetry, that is associated with this time period and with the vilification of absinthe. The, the, the two people you really need to seek out are Baudelaire and Rambaud. Uh, Rambaud spelled Rimbaud, R-I-M-B-A-U-D. Um, these were two French realist poets who were very into drunkenness, revelry, surreal experiences, and they went out of their way to seek these experiences out by drinking a lot of absinthe. And if I recall correctly, very good friends with Toulouse-Lautrec and also yes. spending their times on the days of the Moulin Rouge. <laughs> yep, yeah. So it's all part of that kind of... It's the, not belle quite, epique, the Belle Epoque. Yeah, it's La Belle Epoque, right? Belle Epoque, and, yes. and so I was going to say, not very much like Midnight in Paris, like the movie Midnight in Paris. Mm -hmm. That's romanticizing kind of the 1920s, the expat, uh, like prohibition era Paris. But if you remember in that movie, what's his face? Uh, wow, Owen Wilson. Oh, uh, Luke Wilson. No, Owen yeah. Wilson. Yeah, Owen yeah. Wilson. Oh, hey, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, he, he, uh, 
he's having this experience and romanticizing the 20s and then he's he goes out with a woman during this flashback scene and she's romanticizing la belle époque <laughs> so yeah so that's kind of the, the the context for that go go seek out those uh poets i uh, baudelaire's widely widely translated and then there's a really great uh, contemporary translation of rambeau by john ashbury who is a, a 20th century american poet of note um so uh, Mark, last things uh, to do here, I, I guess, uh, let's tell folks how to find you and uh, 10th Ward. Yeah, definitely. Um, so if you're looking for me, I'm on Instagram, at uh, Whiskey Icarus. Uh, it's whiskey without an E, mm-hmm. um, mostly because I know that's the not the American spelling, but someone already taken the one with an E. That's, true. <laughs> I, that's also my Twitter handle as well, although I mostly use Twitter just to scroll and I don't engage too much. Um, 10th Ward, we're at 10th Ward Co., uh, also on Instagram, also on Facebook. Uh, we are super, super active on both of those social media sites. Uh, we have a website, 10thwarddistilling.com. Also a great place to go. That gets updated every single week. Uh, and we're constantly updating that with new products that we might be coming out with, uh, with cocktails. Uh, you can check out our cocktail lab menu on there. Um, shoot us emails. I can be reached at mark at 10thworddistilling.com. Uh, you can shoot me a DM on Instagram. or I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. I'm kind of everywhere on social, and I always like talking to people. So same thing with 10th Ward. There's always there's three of us that manage those accounts, so there's pretty much always eyes on it. And If you ever have any questions about absinthe or production or anything like that, just let us know. We We love being able to talk to people. Like, that's kind of one besides being weird we also like being transparent we yeah. love inviting people in so <laughs> cool well uh keep your eye on 10th ward distilling uh whether you are uh around here in the mid-atlantic or somewhere um, else in the country uh, doing great things in the spirits uh and cocktail space and uh we here at modern bar cart frequently partner with 10th ward to do a bunch of events so um thanks thanks to 10th ward for helping us do what we do and other than that Mark, thanks for being on the podcast. Eric, thank you so much for having me on. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly, 
and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, beautiful absinthe nouvelle courtesy of Tenth Ward Distilling Company, distilling and flavor insights by Mark Viertaler, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2019.